this morning, I want to turn your attention to Psalm 55. Uh, especially, I want you to notice verse number 22. Uh, verse number 22, it wasn't in our scripture reading, but I think it's, uh, I would say, the most essential verse in this particular psalm. Notice what David says. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee, and he shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. There's a similar verse, as you might know, it might have stirred up in your brain as you were reading that particular verse, uh, the one that comes from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, where uh, St. Peter says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Both of those particular verses and the, and the, uh, the truths that they convey are really just an invitation Both verses convey an invitation for the children of God, God's people, to throw all of their cares, throw their anxieties, throw their burdens on this Lord because the the truth of it all is that he cares for them. He watches over his children with the utmost concern. And I love that promise. I love that truth. David's life, to be sure. I imagine when when Peter was writing his letter, he perhaps was thinking about this verse out of Psalm 55. And thinking perhaps about this one David who he had read, and we can read of too, whose life was so full of hurt and grief and sorrow and burdens. In fact, as we've noted in several, um, several occasions as we've gone through the Psalms, that these, uh, these Psalms that David writes are very much just the outpouring of those things that are causing him distress. They are songs and prayers for souls that are in agony. And indeed, I think if you read through all of Psalm 55, you'll find a very fascinating, I think, pattern of prayer which David follows, which... I would say, allows him to make that statement. That statement at the end of verse 22 where it says that this Lord, this Lord who we can go to and bring our burdens to, who also, as it says, sustains us, is the one who, as David proclaims, never allows the righteous to be moved. What a promise. What's a security to have in our hearts. And I think it's because he knew that this Lord that he could go to, that he could run to, that he could resort to, was one which, whom he could release all of his burdens to. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to, as he says here, cast your burden on the Lord? Or as Peter would say, cast your cares on him. What does that mean? What does that look like? I want you to be sure about this. It doesn't mean just a glib sort of trite saying of let go and let God. That's, I don't think what David or Peter is conveying when they say basically the same things. So the question that I seek to answer this morning is just that. What does it look like to cast our cares on this Lord who cares for us? Well, I think there's three lessons in this particular psalm that show us that, that demonstrate that for us this morning. Number one, I think, is a lesson about complaining. A lesson about complaining. Over and over and over in the psalms, especially the psalms of David, he, as we've noted, he articulates what he's going through. He uses these songs as an opportunity to convey this deep anguish of his present life. And I think what is so fascinating about David's psalms in particular, he doesn't 
seek to hide what his suffering is. He doesn't seek to try and couch it, explain it, to try and make it sound better. He never sugarcoats his situation. When you read the Psalms, he expresses it like it is. This is what's going on. This is making my heart hurt. And indeed, notice verse 4, as Pastor Nathan read. He says this, my heart is sore pained within me. And the terrors of death are fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me. And horror hath overwhelmed me. In a word, you could say that what David is going through is torture. Essentially, that's what that word sore pains there in verse 4 means. It means torture. He is going through a situation in which he feels tortured by all of those who are attacking him. And and indeed, sore pain conveys something even else that is a little bit more vivid, perhaps. It's suggestive of one who is, as as the Hebrew would say, is twisting or he's writhing in pain. I get this image of one who's fallen to the ground with some injury and he's writhing around in agony because he, is, he cannot console himself. And his, this pain is shooting through his body. Essentially, that's what David's heart is experiencing. That's the image. This is how much this moment is hurting David. This is the agony that he is going through. This is how intense the situation is for him. God, I'm writhing. I'm in agony. I am alarmed by that perhaps. It's a graphic language, yes, to be sure. And it's a confession that we too ought to make. This graphic language, I would say, though, reveals just how intense this moment is for David. And I think it also is revealed as he confesses in verse 6 that he just wants to get away from it all. Look again at verses 6 through 8. And I said, David says, oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Lo, then I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. For David, this particular moment, uh, in in this particular time, uh, the wilderness sounds way more appealing than any sort of palace that he could live in. And wandering afar off sounds way better to him, way more inviting than any sort of royal amusement that he could just order it with a snap of a finger. He wants to get away. He wants to escape. He imagines that, oh, if I just had wings and I could fly away, all my troubles would be gone. All of my, my pain and my anguish would, would cease. He wants Escape. He's been bitten, we might say, by the grass's greener bug. Which tells him, if you just change your location, all of your problems will disappear. It's hard not to sympathize with David. <laughs> Who hasn't wished they could just fly away and escape all their troubles? <laughs> Who hasn't wished that they could just get away from it all? Assuming that some spontaneous trip to uh, like Italy or something would just make every stress that you have not uh, be real anymore. And essentially that's what David is praying for. I just want to get away from it, God. I cannot deal with this. I'm writhing. I'm in anguish. This overwhelming season has allowed him to start fantasizing about being somewhere else, in some other place with perhaps no one around him. 
But in the end, I think he has to realize, and what we also have to co- confess is, it's just a dream. It's just a fantasy to assume that flying far away would make this torment go away too. You and I, we, we cannot just fly away or flee to the hills and, and make our problems disappear precisely because ultimately grief is not tethered to our geography. There was a, a skit a couple months ago and it showed this guy traveling the world and he was confessing his problems and he, he came to realize that he had problems in other places. He just had those same problems in other places. He just carried them with him. That was the luggage he was bringing with him to all of these different exotic locations and places that you would think, how can you not be happy here? Because he himself was in torment. He himself was grieving. And he just carried them with him. Our grief is, is not tied to a particular place. It's something that we carry with us. And here David is confessing, oh, if I could just get out of it. But as David here realizes, that ultimately is not the answer. Actually, because it's because our ultimate answer is not a change in geography. It's a person. Notice again, verse 22, as he's confessing all of these complaints, as he's bringing these hurts and these agonies to the Lord, notice what he says, cast thy burden upon the Lord. Cast it all. Fling whatever your present lot is, fling it on this God. That's the way we could translate it a little bit simpler perhaps. Just give it all to him. Fling it on his shoulders. Whatever your circumstance is, whatever your present situation is that life brings you, whatever, as the idiom says, whatever card you've been dealt, that's what God wants to hear. That's what God is desiring to hear from his children. David certainly knew this. As we said, he told, he told it like it is all the way through the Psalms. And I think he did so because he knew that his God was listening. Again, go back to verse 1 of <clears throat> at the beginning of Psalm 55 and notice what he says. Give ear, he says, to my prayer, O God, and hide not thyself from my supplication. Attend unto me and hear me. I mourn in my complaints and make a noise. Three times he says here to God, give me your full attention. He petitions God to listen and chief among what David is desirous of, chief among I think this king's needs is is simply an ear to hear him. He wants an ear for all of his confessions and his complaints to go to. And such is what this sovereign Lord is always offering his children. There is never a moment when God turns a deaf ear towards you and your suffering. Yes, there may be at times when it feels as though he's not listening. And in fact, David is very familiar with that. If you want to read a place where David feels that, read Psalm 88. He feels as to go, God has gone deaf and he is not listening. He's not paying attention. Indeed, though, we could say that those are just moments when... He would just have us wait on his timing. When we ought to, as hard as it is, sit. Sit and wait. Sit and wait as he works. But what he does not want us to do 
What he does not want us ever to do is stop praying. And in fact, that's what David here, I think, is learning and and showing and demonstrating is that even when our prayers are nothing but just noisy complaints, he wants to hear them. Notice he says, I mourn in my complaints and make a noise. This morning, you're invited to just talk with God. Even when all you can do is just groan or or mourn or, as, as he says, make a noise. That's what God wants to hear. That's what God is desirous of hearing out of his children as it says in Romans 8. That he is able to make sense and he intercedes on behalf of his children's unutterable groanings as it says in Romans 8.26. He hears our stuttering. He hears our stammering prayers. And he intercedes on behalf of them. This to me I think is one of the most amazing and, and, and just uh, humbling truths of all of scripture that you think about this. You right now, this morning, right where you are, you have God's attention. You have God's notice. He is watching over you right where you are. Your suffering, your situation, your stress is not unknown to him. It's not unfamiliar to him. You have God's attention right where you are and you're invited, yes, this morning. You are invited to complain to him. He's able to weather your complaints. You're invited to cry and and bring all your sorrows to him. And you do not do so to an unhearing God, but a God who gives you his full attention. I think it's a blessing to know. That we have a God who is able to hear our complaints. And he responds not out of, uh, out of some sort of uh, annoyance. He responds out of mercy. One writer put it this way. That God listens to us in Christ. Even when we have feelings that are ugly. And even when such ugly feelings are directed his way. He wants to hear us. To hear our complaints. And here David is complaining. My situation is torture. God help me get out of it. And yet he knew that. The answer to the solution wasn't an escape. But the God who was with him. In that torture. A lesson about complaining. But notice a lesson about cursing. Number two. A lesson about cursing. Because you might be wondering. What brought about this type of language. David is here bringing uh, to, the, to the surface some very, perhaps, venomous language, some very vivid language. What situation could have brought this about? Well, verse 3 gives us a clue. Notice, he says, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they cast iniquity upon me, and in wrath they hate me. Something's gone down, something very shocking, something that has allowed David to see his name be drugged through the mud. And this oppressive enemy, which only spits out words of hatred, is now the only noise he can hear. Something obviously has gone down. Well, notice verse 12, because we're given even more of a clue at what happened. Notice, for it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. 
Neither was it they that hated me, that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him, but it was thou, a man, my equal, my guide, and my acquaintance. He's been betrayed. David has been betrayed. The the source of all of his stress, the source of all of his derision now is this one, as he says, who was his equal. This one whom he he had lived his life with and he had been betrayed by. David is here undone, we might say. Not by some enemy that was attacking him in the open fields. He was undone by a friend who was pretending to be a friend. And indeed, notice his description of this double-crossing friend. Notice, but it was thou, a man, mine equal, verse 13, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. And notice verse 20, and he hath put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He hath broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. A man that had earned David's trust had now betrayed that trust, had breached it with words that were smoother than butter. This was no ordinary acquaintance. This was no just familiar colleague. This was a trusted friend. One, as David says, he considers an equal. This closeness is the source of this pain. This writhing, as he says, twisting pain. This uh, elemental torture that he feels in this particular moment, in this particular time, comes from this one who hurt him so deeply. Many have made attempts to connect this particular psalm then with what happens with David's son Absalom. Especially when you consider the conspiracy that Absalom starts and how joining in that conspiracy was David's trusted close advisor Ahithophel. If you read 2 Samuel 15, in fact, you can read all the way through it. You can read how Absalom stirs up the people of Israel. And as it says there, he steals their hearts. And among the hearts that were stolen was Ahithophel, essentially David's right-hand man. His counselor, his advisor, this trusted one. This one, we could say, is one that he took sweet counsel with. You can sense David's pain. You can sense David's hurt. One he had trusted had let him down. One he had trusted had more than just let him down. Had actually gone and assaulted his name, his reputation. He had assaulted the truth of God. We are given this glimpse, I think, though, in David's life. For more than just history. More than just an interesting glimpse into a time in which David was hurting. Because notice what David prays for. Go back to verse number 9. He's getting into now this time in which he's going to really articulate what he wants to happen to these enemies. <laughs> Notice. Destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go about it. Upon the walls thereof, mischief and also and sorrow are in the midst of it. Wickedness is in the midst thereof. Deceit and guile depart not from her streets. These are coarse words that David here describes. He's describing the source of all of this, uh, this conflict. 
And he's calling down now on, he's calling on the Lord to rain down destruction on them. Destroy, devour my enemies. Indeed, he says, divide their tongues. He's almost hearkening back to that, that moment in Genesis chapter 11 where God confused the tongues of men at the Tower of Babel. You can see here, he's saying, do that again. Do that again to those who oppose me. Divide their tongues, confuse their schemes, and let their plans be turned to dust. But he goes even further. Look at verse 15. Let death seize upon them. And let them go down quick into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. This is some serious language from David. He's praying now for his enemies. Not just to have a hard day. Not just to have their plans messed up. Actually he's praying let them go down into hell quickly. Hasten their descent. You can see how David is reasoning this as he says this, this term wickedness as it appears in verses 9 through 11 and here in verse 15. They've walked in wickedness. They've made wickedness their habitation. They've been overcome by it. So essentially they've made their bed. Now they have to lay in it. That's essentially David's prayer. They've uh, uh, resorted to wicked schemes. So let them be overtaken by wickedness. You might be alarmed by such words. They're hard words to swallow, hard words to read, especially when you remember that they're coming from the man after God's own heart. And here he is praying for his enemies to have death seize them. This is no small thing. It almost sounds unchristian at first. How do such words like this fit in the Bible? And what are we to do with them? I won't lie to you and tell you that I haven't been tempted to try and pray my enemies into hell, but I don't know if I've ever done it with the proper motives. <laughs> this is, though, what we have to realize is what we would call an imprecatory psalm. And there are several of these throughout the Psalter, and many of them come from the mouth of David. But essentially, an imprecatory psalm is a song in which the one who is praying is praying for the Lord to judge the wicked. It's praying for the Lord's judgment. In fact, that word imprecation just means that verbalizing a curse. You're using this sort of curse on the way to uh, make it known that you're calling on someone else to act. And there are several of these, as I said, noted throughout the Psalms. And I think at first we can be confused by them. I think they're misunderstood in many ways. I don't know how many often I've actually consciously sat down and prayed in a precatory psalm because of their language. It's fearsome. But there's a couple of things we ought to keep in mind. First of all, imprecations are not uncontrolled outbursts. This was not just something that David wrote or sang in the heat of the moment. This is not just something that came to him. This is not a spontaneous fit of rage. And neither, as we might even realize, are these David's words alone. This is a holy and spirit-inspired psalm that God's people used in the worship of God himself. As the psalms are, they are the worship book, we might say, of the people of Israel. So again, this isn't something that just came to David in the heat of the moment. 
Have you ever had one of those and you, you write out a six-page email to someone that's very furious, but then you don't hit send because you have the Holy Spirit on you? You don't hit it, but you let all of that get out. You let it all go. This is not, this is not that, essentially. <laughs> this is not just something you're writing about in the heat of the moment. This is, in fact, inspired words from the Holy Spirit, which ought to make our hair stand on end. But also, I think, too, imprecations are not motivated by personal vendetta. David is not out to sort of get a rise out of something he wants to happen to his enemies. Yes, the initial hurt was something very deep and very personal for David. But his response throughout the psalm suggests that something else is going on. Something deeper, something darker. That this isn't just... Some, some old friends who had had a very long growing grudge against him. This was actually the, the machinations we might say. This was the schemes that are, acting, uh, that are being acted upon by those who are serving the wicked one. They're acting in wickedness. They're serving wickedness we might say. As it says that it's in the streets. And they are making it the, the place where they have their habitation. So you see, it's not just old friends holding a grudge. This is something way more serious. The conflict that's going on is not just about who's right and who's wrong. It's about righteousness versus unrighteousness. It's, it's about light versus dark. And you see, David throughout is not praying that his personal uh, sort of malice has vindication, we might say. Actually, he's, he's praying that God's truth and righteousness is what prevails. But, and I think that's what it makes it very clear that lastly, imprecations are based on God's promises. You see, this isn't just something that David is pulling out of the hat. He's not praying that his enemy stub their toe and get frustrated. He's praying for this final judgment to come upon them. You see, God's word is very clear, as we've noted on several other occasions, that vengeance is his. Justice belongs to Yahweh alone, and he alone is the judge of all peoples and places and things. And one thing that he's assured his people is that his justice will prevail in his way. And yes, we, his faithful, we, his church, we will one day be vindicated. We can sing such psalms of victory, knowing that that victory is ours because of Christ. But, and this is important, it's the Lord who does the vindicating, not us. It's the Lord who does the exacting of justice, not us. And you see, I think this is the blessing of the imprecatory psalms and the blessing of what here David is now singing and praying. Because in a way, he's resigning now ultimate control over all of this situation to the only one who could do something about it. You see, as he says there in verse 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord. And then verse 23, but thou, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloody and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in thee. He knows what's coming for these who have made their bed in wickedness. He resolves now. I will trust in you. 
You see, rather than sort of taking some sort of action himself, some sort of retribution of his own accord, he pleads with the Lord to act on his behalf. So therefore, in a way, this cursing prayer, we might say, is like a release valve for his heart. It's a space that God gives him to just bear his soul. And the good news, the best news of all, is that this God who hears these imprecations, who hears these curses, he hears them for what they truly are, cries for help. This is David, perhaps at one of the most low points of his entire life, who is crying for deliverance. And this is what God always has an ear to hear. He is always bent in giving his attention and giving his care towards those who are helpless and oppressed and suffering. He can weather our cursing prayers. He can weather our complaining prayers. But notice number three, a lesson about confiding. A lesson about complaining, a lesson about cursing, a lesson about confiding. Look at, numbers, look at verse 16. He has just sort of laid out, bared his soul in terms of what he would like to see happen to his enemies. Let death seize upon them. (laughs) And notice what he says. Notice this resolve. As for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He hath delivered my soul in peace from the battle that was against me, for there were many with me. After expressing his desire and his longing and his yearning for vindication, here he reaffirms this resolve, this trust in this one who is, as he says, my deliverer, my savior, this only one who can deliver my soul from the battle. He knew that God would hear him. He shall hear my voice. And he knew that in this moment, when all of his trusted voices perhaps were betraying him, when all those that he had confided in were leaving him alone, leaving him in their wake, it was God's words alone which were secure. Notice Verse 22 again, cast thy burden on the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. It's very easy in moments like this one that David was here enduring to make it feel as though everything is crumbling. Everything is crashing. You can't even remember some of the relationships that you had trusted in. You've been betrayed. You've been stabbed in the back, we might say. Who can you go to? Who can you resort to? Who can you run to in a moment like that? Here David says, as for me, I'm going to go to God. He knew, I think perhaps, by faith, that there was only one who can weather, who can sustain uh, his holiness and his truth and his righteousness uh, when all of your complaints and curses are being poured out. There's only one who can hear such things in confidence. There's this God here who says, Bring them to me. Bring all of your hurts. This was David's solution. This was his only hope. And my friends, this is your only recourse even here this morning. Did you know that you're free to confide wholly, wholeheartedly, completely in this Lord of all things? 
As we noted at the beginning of the sermon, you can cast all of your burdens on him. You can hurl every anxiety that you have on this God. And you can lay all of your cares at his feet. And you can never weigh him down too much with those things that you feel are weighing you down. His back is broad enough. God's shoulders are strong enough to carry every single one of every single one's burden. Every care you have, every worry that is racking and running around in your brain, those stresses that are so deep they shake you to the core to where you cannot get sleep anymore, God invites us to unload on him. He wants to hear it. He wants it all. He can take it all. His body, his grace is enough for every single one's burden. And this morning, the hurt that you feel, God wants to hear that. You see, he is our ultimate confidant, we might say. The one who comes near to us. Not only to empathize with our pain, to sympathize with our agony, but he comes even nearer than that because he takes all of that on himself. You know, I I couldn't help but escape when I was reading this particular psalm and noticing that this is exactly what Christ went through. Jesus, yes, is our Savior and he's our Deliverer because he too endured the searing pain of betrayal. He too felt the loss of a close friend, one with whom he had spent so many hours conversing with and traveling with and ministering with and living with. And when that that apostle, Judas Iscariot, kissed him in the garden, it was a kiss of death. The act of utmost betrayal. You can imagine Judas being described much like verse 21. Where his words are as smooth as butter, but behind them is nothing but wars and swords being drawn. All of which to say this this morning. The reason... That you can cast your burdens upon the Lord. is because he knows what your burdens feel like. Jesus knows your hurt. He knows how it feels. He knows how painful life as a human can be. Can you think about that? Your God knows what it's like to be human. And he knows that this calamity that you're facing, this distressing situation, this decision that you have to make, this conversation that you have to have, he has faced similar situations. He's faced them. He's endured them. There's no emotion, there's no condition that you or I could ever face that's foreign to him. That's how, uh, that's how uh, much of a substitute he is. That's how much of a savior he is. He is familiar with our wrecked lives, with our, our weak spirits. So much so that he himself has adopted our wreckage and our, and our weakness as his own. And he's suffered all of that. All of that vengeance that we would love to spill forth. All of those curses that we can shout. That's, that's, that's due the sin that we've received or we've distributed. He's endured all of that. 
He endured all of mankind's imprecations that he might bring about our salvation. This is a God who knows what it's like to be human. And he says, come, cast your burdens on me. This is your Savior. This is your Lord. This only a holy God that we sing about is a God who comes so near to us that he says, I will sustain you with my words. I am moved by this invitation that we have. A God who knows us so deeply. He knows how we hurt. He knows why we hurt. And he's the only one who can relieve us from our hurt. You see, when you're casting your burden, you're leaving your complaints with him. You're leaving your curses with him. And you're confiding in this God, knowing that he is the one, the man of sorrows, the friend of sinners, and the Lord of all who invites us, yes, to cast our burdens on his shoulders. Because he will sustain you. And he will never allow you to be moved this morning. What is weighing you down? It's 2022. It's a new year. The time for quote unquote fresh starts. I won't ask how many resolutions have already been broken. In a day and a half. It's a time I think. To lay down our burdens. To truly confess the things we would like to complain about, the curses that we would like to spill out, God can take them. God can hear them. And in his wisdom and his justice, he will provide the grace enough to sustain you in it. This morning, I invite you, release your burdens on this one who can bear them for you. And he's done so already. Let us bow in a word of prayer.